This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States until the Scopes Monkey Trial. We use a fair bit of jargon in this one, assuming that you've heard all the previous episodes in Season 5. If this is your first ever listen, hello, welcome. The best place to start is with Season 5, Episode 1, called What is an Evangelical? And then work your way back here. Also, today's show features a discussion rather than my usual public radio style of editing and scripting. It's not indicative of a normal episode, but... I think you're still going to like it. Okay, here we go. Imagine getting a package in the mail. It's a book. Something you didn't order. That's odd. You unwrap it and find a note inside. It says, Compliments of two Christian laymen. This happened to thousands of people in March of 1910 all across the United States and beyond. And there were 11 more volumes to come across the next five years. This was a collection of essays, 90 in total, each attempting to defend some aspect of the Christian faith. Collectively, the books were called The Fundamentals, and the Christian layman who sent them to you, Two Wealthy Brothers. Lyman and Milton Stewart, who ran California's largest oil company. I have a bonus episode on Patreon about these guys from a few weeks ago if you want more information about them. They also helped to fund the Schofield Reference Bible. The Fundamentals is an important series of essays, though it seems they were not widely read. These books were distributed to seminary students, YMCA leaders, pastors, evangelists, and just about anybody in the country involved in ministry. The project came out of a growing concern. Modernist theology was becoming more and more accepted. I did a whole episode about modernism, but here is a quick oversimplification. The Bible is full of miracles, right? God parts the Red Sea. Jesus walks on the water, and Jesus rises from the dead. But there is also a lot of teaching on morality, society, and history. The modernist said, let's remove all of that miraculous stuff and just focus on the morals and history. Love your neighbor as yourself. These ideas were taking over pulpits and seminaries, first in Germany and then in the United States like John D. Rockefeller's University of Chicago, which became the American hotbed for modernist thought. Big-name schools fell one by one to modernism, and so theologically conservative Christians formed their own institutions to combat the spread. Seminaries, Bible colleges, printing houses, conferences, and publications, including the fundamentals. Okay, so... This might seem like nitpicking. Who cares what is taught in seminaries? But this was a real threat to orthodox thinking in Christianity. 
If the way to be saved is to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, and someone is going around undercutting the miraculous, it's simply gauche to believe in miracles. In the minds of traditional evangelicals, this isn't an intellectual debate. It's a movement that is sending people to hell. Enter Lyman Stewart, the rich guy I mentioned earlier. He and a bunch of other folks met at one of D.L. Moody's Northfield Bible Conferences. There, they decided to band together to create Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, to train missionaries. And through a series of events, Stewart also met up with A.C. Dixon, one of Moody's lieutenants and an excellent debater against modernism. The two agreed to begin work on a series of essays, each aimed at defending the faith. They encouraged the premier theologians and preachers of the day to contribute. We've already talked about some of them. Reuben Torrey, for example. But also guys in D.L. Moody's orbit like Dixon, James Gray, and W.J. Erdman. The goal was to lay down the fundamentals of the faith, while also avoiding distractions. Though they were united against modernism, they didn't always agree with each other. Some of the writers were premillennialist dispensationalists, still theologically hot-button issues in the 1910s. If they argued about those little battles, they feared they might lose the war. So premillennialism and dispensationalism were largely left out. That's a big deal. When we think of fundamentalists a few years later in the 1920s, we generally think of people who lean premillennialist dispensationalist. Now, if you've been listening to this season, you know what those terms mean, but I can summarize them basically like this. World history trends toward cataclysm. The church is backsliding. Uh-oh. And God deals with humanity differently depending on what era we're in. This collection of essays did not make that assertion. As we'll see later in this episode, the writers didn't even agree on big things like what to do with evolution. That's why this collection is less important as a founding document of a movement and more as a time capsule of where fundamentalism was just a few years before the term was coined. Like I said, this series is not widely read. Most of the history books I've read stress their importance, but skip over the content. Now, why would you skip over something that you say is important? So rather than do that, I gathered a group of friends to read a few of these essays and report our findings back to you. I don't usually cover theology in this show, but I think our conversation was well worth the time. Let's take a look and see where theologically conservative Christians disagreed in 1910 and also encourage each other to consider our own fundamentals. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. 
in Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So, I figured today, what would be better for an audio medium than to talk about 90 impenetrable essays? <laughs> but just we're just going to pick six of them. And we have a group of folks together who have read them, who have studied them, and who are going to tell us what they're about. And we're going to try to have some fun with it and discuss it for you here on the Truce Podcast. Uh, first of all, we're going to go around, maybe just introduce ourselves super quick. I'm Chris Darren, the host of the Truce Podcast. Uh, Jake, can you tell us who you are? I'm Jake Doberins. I produce the Creatively Christian podcast. I've got Ray McDaniel here sitting with me. Yep, I'm Ray McDaniel. I am lead pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jackson, Wyoming. Excellent. And Andy Pearson? Um, I'm Andy Pearson. I am semi-retired and... One of the best red guys I know. (laughs) And I got my brother, Nick Steeren. Yeah, former filmmaker and current uh, technology and communications director at First Baptist Church in Jackson, Wyoming. (laughs) It's so good to have everybody here. I also uh, pre-recorded an interview with Melvin Benson of the Cinematic Doctrine podcast, and we'll be playing that a little later. We have a lot of ground to cover, and I don't want to bore the audience, so we'll have to keep this thing moving. So um, I'll just start with my essay, if that's all right. The essay is called My Experience with Higher Criticism by J.J. Reeve. Now, J.J. Reeve was a professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And unfortunately, that is about all I could find about him. (laughs) Every other reference was to his writing this essay that I could find. So this is part of his legacy. He comes at this, uh, he's talking about higher criticism, which is a modernist theology, a lot of the things we talked about in the episode called The Liberals for Truce. And so it's a lot of like, let's take the Bible and study it in an academic way, in a historic way, but also remove the miraculous uh, was one of the big things. And so this essay is generally facing that idea. How can you study something and, and ignore a big part of what it says? He starts out with this big bomb drop, actually, where he's like, I know this world because I used to be in this world. And it's like, oh. and he went to a large university where higher criticism was taught effectively and he believed it. And one of his quotes was, but upon closer thinking, I saw that the whole movement with its conclusions was the result of the adoption of the hypothesis of evolution. With, with this season, I've been learning a lot of the, the reasons people were against evolution in the fundamentalist movement was not necessarily because we came from apes, uh, which is a part of it, but not the whole thing. It was also, what is the logical conclusion then if we take that idea of evolution and apply it to other realms of study? Uh, so things like the Bible. Can our understanding of the Bible evolve? Can the Bible evolve? And so he, he saw those two things as kind of being married, higher criticism and evolution. It is a view that as you study the Bible, you will evolve and realize that the miraculous is not important, but the morals are. 
essentially. Which I think is an important distinction to analyze this and to say, it says one thing and I'm just going to get rid of that. Yeah. That's crazy. He has this other great quote. They give more credence to the guesses of some so-called scholar, a clay tablet, a heathen king's boast, or a rude drawing in stone than to the scripture record. So it is kind of strange to, in his opinion, to study something but also have no regard for what it actually says about itself. That you'd rather believe somebody else's opinion than what the Bible actually says. And the, the, the mic drop he has on higher criticism is this. How is it possible for a preacher to be a power for God whose source of authority is his own reason and convictions? The Bible can scarcely contain more than good advice for such a man. I was much impressed with their boast of having all scholarship on their side. It is very gratifying to feel oneself abreast with the times, up to date, and in the front rank of thought. So he was speaking about that, that sense of being in the know and in the cool crowd of we're the professors and we get it. And, you know, but they were, of course, going off of their own word and not anything more authoritative than that was what his argument was. So the final quote I'm going to read is, when one makes his philosophy his authority, it is not a long step until he makes himself his own God. His own reason becomes supreme in his thinking, and this reason becomes his Lord. So that, that, that's his basic argument. I thought for myself that this essay was actually pretty good. For, for all the, the words that I heard people say about the fundamentals, I thought this was actually pretty accessible and uh, was not mean or mean-spirited and was actually pretty focused on what it had to say. So that's J.J. Reeve, and that's his essay. Any, any, any immediate thoughts on that? One of the things you said bleeds into what, what my essay was talking about. When you talk about taking away the miracles, you can take away everything to the resurrection. If you take away the resurrection, you take away Christianity. There's no, there's no point in Christianity. But if the resurrection is, then all the other miracles make sense. Everything is based on this one moment. If, if the resurrection did occur, then all the other miracles make total sense. And so taking them out does you no good if you can't take away the resurrection. Once that occurs, or once you agree that that occurs, everything else makes sense down the road from it. And we, we ran into this in college, my brother and I, where a lot of what was taught about Christianity, even within the chapel services, was in this sort of higher criticism realm, where it's like, let's remove the, the, the miraculous and Christ dying for you, that kind of stuff, and make it more about how can I live a nice life, which sounds very good, but it takes away that the whole point of the Bible. Yeah, a, a fairly modern theologian would say it doesn't really matter whether or not Christ was raised from the dead. What matters is that he rises every day in your heart. Right. Which sound it sounds so good. Right. It but, sounds so good, but the the reality is that we need Christ to have If he has he not risen from the dead, then we are to be most pitied indeed, Paul says, yeah. you know. So if you give the scripture any weight whatsoever, then listen to it. Pay, pay attention to what it says. And this, the the document that I have in front of me is The Deity of Christ by B.B. Warfield. Why don't we dip into that one next? Can we? Yeah. He is saying that, that, that the conviction about Christ's divinity. So this is one of the things that people do argue against. In the modernist movement, higher criticism starts to back away from his divinity and his deity. And if you're watching TikToks today, people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's not quite true. <laughs> That's not true at all. Uh, he, 
this this essay is great. I think you gave me the shortest essay. I thought it was the easiest because I looked over the others. B.B. Warfield says that our conviction of the deity of Christ rests not alone on the scriptural passages which assert it, and there are plenty, but also on his entire impression on the world. Or perhaps thus, our conviction rests not more on the scriptural assertions than upon his entire manifestation. So to see the church, Christ said he would build his church. And he did. He has done that. There are a few places in this article where I just said amen out loud to myself because I, I think that he's I think he's right on because there's no theological argument against a transformed life. So if someone has accepted the truth of Christ and has put their faith in him, believed him, and it has transformed their their life. B.B. Warfield is saying that in itself, individually, is an evidence that what he said was true, that the word is true. But not just individually, collectively, that this has continued to grow as a movement throughout all these years. Now, experience-based existential sort of arguments are, are dangerous. It feels kind of dangerous to say, I rest everything upon this burning feeling I have in my heart, because we've had that happen in the history of the last 2,000 years several times, and it has not been, I'd say, a good thing <laughs> in a lot of cases. But that's basically what this whole article is about. Scripture can be trusted, and you can see an evidence of it in the way that it has transformed people and societies in some cases, although it's not completely about that. The last line that I wrote, uh, what I wrote down on my notes here is, amen, amen, amen. Everything that he said, I agree with. Uh, it's funny, though, because everything's a reaction to something else. And so I feel like all of these guys, whether it's evolution or uh, the resurrection, miracles, whatever it is that they're, they, they feel like I've got to say something because it, you can't give on this point. If you give on this point, then you've given away the farm. You, you, can't, you can't just let that go and not try to refute it. He's pulling people back into the truth, into the center of the truth, rather than being on an extreme edge, which I think higher criticism did that. They wanted to, and context is king. We should examine the context under which the books were written. I think we should examine that. I think we should examine the order in which they were written. Chronology is important. But when you start to guess whether or not this is original to the text, and maybe this shouldn't have even been in there in the first place, when you start to give that sort of thing away, then it gets to be problematic. Now, fundamentalism that grew out of it, I, I have grown up in a fundamentalist background milieu my whole life, and I'm, I'm having some issue with that these days. But I don't think that the, the foundations here, the fundamentalists, these papers, all of them that we have read or looked at so far, I feel like, yeah, that's, that's understandable. It's, it's pretty good. I think that we need to get back to what it says. Well, and it's one of the remarkable things about this group of essays is that the term fundamentalist didn't come about until five years after they published the last essay. These are sort of more a time capsule for where the fundamentalist movement was from 1910 to 1915 than really their marching orders after that. Yep. So it, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing, especially once we get into the, some of these evolution conversations. We'll see how they vary. Uh, Jake, can you, can you tell us about your essay? Yeah. So my essay is called 
Science and Christian Faith. It is by Reverend Professor James Orr. He was a professor of church history for a time and then later of philosophy and apologetics at the University of Glasgow in, in Scotland. And I believe I read he was a minister, minister in the Scotland Presbyterian Church. Are you going to do this in a Scottish accent? That's what I need to know. You know, I debated it, but um, <laughs> decided that was unwise. Unwise. That's good. That's good. So I found this essay really fascinating. I have a lot of background in sort of creationism and stuff. I did a, I had a nonprofit that was anti-evolution, all that kind of jazz for a bit in my younger years. And so I thought this was a really fascinating article because it's it more aligns with where I'm at now. So he is addressing this idea of conflict between science and faith and sort of breaks it down to three parts. So the first part is about miracles, because if you're trying to adopt a scientific mindset about the world, miracles kind of go against the scientific process because you can't predict them. You can't test them. They go against the natural order of things or addresses this by, first of all, just kind of questioning this silly notion that we should just dismiss all miracles and also questions whether they really, that really goes against science to say that, well, a God that can do whatever can occasionally influence how things go in the world. And sometimes that can be through natural means. One of the things he talks about is like the parting of the Red Sea. You know, if God wanted to use some, some wind or some natural processes to part the Red Sea rather than just like a magic snap of the finger. You know, God can do that. God can work through sort of the natural order to produce things that are kind of, well, supernatural. Miracles don't make sense in the atheistic worldview. But if you're a theist, then it makes sense. And you can still do science. It's not like science breaks apart just because miracles happen. Okay, so he's not he's not anti-science. No, he's not anti-science. He actually seems to be really interest in science. He seems to know a lot about science. And that kind of comes up in the next three parts. The second part is really sort of addressing, mostly addressing this idea of Genesis, the creation week. You know, that's kind of the big topic when it comes to science and faith. But he first talks about, this talks about the change in thinking about astronomy from a earth-centered universe to a sun-centered solar system and talks about how that upset a lot of people's faith. But then nowadays, we we aren't our faith is not challenged by the fact that the sun is the center of our solar system. So he uses that to say, like, hey, we can get through this. Sometimes, yeah, some new scientific developments can seem really scary, but we can get through this, and it doesn't have to crush our faith. So he's not willing to take the extreme scientism sort of position where we just believe science wholeheartedly and never budge kind of thing. But he says, hey, we can take that and still believe in the Bible because ultimately the Bible is addressing a different kind of thing. The Bible is not a textbook that is meant to tell us exactly what happened when it comes to origins and things like that. He even at one point says, well, maybe each day is, you know, a couple million years or whatever, you know, that kind of theory, that kind of idea. So 
I was surprised, especially as he talks about in the next, the third section about evolution specifically, that he has zero problems with evolution, seems to believe in evolution, and even talks about kind of this sort of theistic evolution approach, how God can be involved in this process and sort of endows image after this, you know, multi-million year process, God endows his image on people and they become who we are today, basically. So Jake, did this surprise you that in the midst of this book of 90 essays called The Fundamentals, there's an essay that says evolution might actually be okay? Oh, it really surprised me. That was not what I thought it was going to be about because my understanding, my experience with fundamentalism is usually very harsh against evolution and sometimes in general, just science. Uh, scientists are views as atheistic and, and all that. But this guy was like, hey, we don't need to be mad at these scientists. He even mentioned several Christians who are scientists and in his day, current Christians who are scientists um, and says, we don't have to be mad at them. Uh, but we have been misunderstanding the Bible in, in certain spots. And so there isn't an antagonism because they're kind of dealing with different things, is in a sense what he's saying. Andy, would you be willing to, to go next? Yeah, sure. See, my essay is by uh, Ruben Torrey. The title is The Certainty and Importance of the Bodily Resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Dead. The, I mean, the, the, the title really kind of tells you what this is about. There's no hidden anything in this story. I mean, his contention, and he argues it from a, I would call it a courtroom-esque geometry sort of, of look at it. If this, then this. So he, he kind of stacks things up. Um, and he goes through different, he looks at the four Gospels um, and talks about how they are separate ideas and that the apparent inconsistencies in them are actually proof of their reality. In that, uh, you know, if, if the, the four of us sitting at this table all witnessed a traffic accident, we're all going to have seen a different traffic accident where we stood from the traffic accident to how involved we were in it, whether we knew someone in it, all that's going to change the way we see it. None of us would be lying about what we saw, but we'd all have seen a different piece of it. And I thought that was not a bad argument. He's not argumentative in terms of angry at someone or trying to defeat someone. He's literally laying out a case for why the resurrection of Christ happened. I thought he did a fairly good job. One of the, the for me, the strongest argument he makes is something that Ray touched upon, and that is, the changed life. If the if the disciples hadn't seen him bodily resurrected, they would not have done what they did after that. I mean, up till then you've got kind of this, and help me if I'm wrong here, Ray. You've got this kind of this group of people who are kind of bouncing in different ways. You know, they're, they're approaching this different way. The moment they realize that Christ is bodily resurrected, everything changed. They had a focus and a mission at that point that transcended their lives. Um, that they were willing to go to die for. And for me, that was the strongest argument, is that if this didn't happen, why would these men do this? What are arguably stupid things from the eyes of the world? Why go to places you know you're going to get stoned? Why go places you know you're going to be put in prison? You'd only do that if you knew, if you knew that this had happened. This whole argument, his whole argument is not uh, confrontational or angry or anything of that nature. It's actually fairly measured. And when I looked into this series of essays... That was their goal, is not to have an argument, but to present a case in a, in a calm, rational way. They weren't looking to pick a fight, which I thought was interesting at the time. When you think of the word fundamentalist, these guys, they weren't looking to have a fight about this. They just wanted to make sure that 
in my opinion, this is how they, they thought that. I, want, I, want, I need to get the other side of this, this argument out there. And I think maybe we use argument in a negative way because we're used to talking heads arguing. And I don't think that's necessarily the whole case. You can have a discussion. You can have an argument over things that's fairly uh, rational and civilized. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to transition over to Nick here and have him talk about his essay. So my essay is called Evolutionism in the Pulpit. And it just says for author, it says by, by an occupant of the pew. So I don't know who that is, that, but that's interesting. I actually found this one to be much more hyperbolic like, <laughs> and often dismissive uh, of evolution in the pulpit. Like just there's a hard line and it's like, this is where we're at. Don't go past this line. So it's much different than what you guys read. And that's, I mean, that's helpful in a way. But he says that the theory of evolution is just a theory uh, and that was bought into by scientists all over the world and that there's no evidence to support this idea. Evolution, he says, evolution is built on assumptions that are built on assumptions, built on assumptions, and that preachers have written off large sections of scripture because of science. And he doesn't say evolution, he just says science. So that's that's kind of a, an interesting, again, another hard line and kind of a wholesale write-off of, of science. He also says that he thinks that the whole book of Genesis is discredited by people who believe in evolution, and he tries to discredit preachers who believe in the theory of evolution or even look at the theory of evolution. All of these other people actually named themselves in their articles, and this one is by an occupant of the pew. I think I think I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he says later, certainly scholarship can no longer be pleaded as an excuse for clinging to Darwinism. And in interest of common honesty, these men ought to either drop their materialism or leave the Christian pulpit. So he tries like this really hard line that you you have no business being in the Christian pulpit if you even think about evolution being real. And, you know, there's something to that. Like people really like having strong lines and that kind of thing. But again, you, you don't offer any, offer any room for maybe God operates different than we think he does. And I think that could be a tricky, a tricky balance there. And he also basically says that ministers should have guts to stand up and preach creationism. Wow. Um, so it's pretty, it's a, it's a different, different hard line than, than what you guys read. Wow. Well, yeah. So I, I guess the question would be, Everybody else has said that their article was not antagonistic. Did you find yours to be written in an antagonistic way? Oh, I would say absolutely, yeah. And again, like I was saying with Copernicus discovering that the Earth is not the center of the universe back in 1543, this guy should have known ahead of time that like, hey, there are discoveries and when we draw these hard lines, it only gives an excuse for people to walk away. I, th I thought it was very antagonistic, but I can see where he's coming from. you know. But I think in matters of Genesis – there's a lot of things that we just don't understand. Like, I mean, even if you believe creationism, we don't know how God happened to make the, you know, mud rise out of the ocean. Like, was it there the whole time? Did he make new mud and then it rose out? Were there mountains? Was it flat at the time when the mud was created? There's a lot of things we don't know. And we start drawing hard lines on things we don't know. It removes God's poetic license or his ability to not tell us things, which is what we see in, in Job. I actually purposely picked an essay that that was okay with evolution and the one that was against evolution. Are are any of you surprised? And actually, maybe Jake, I'd be interested to know. Are are you surprised to know that these guys disagreed with each other? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that in the same collection of essays that there is disagreement of that kind of nature. You'd think if we're 
look, if we're trying to get to the fundamentals that it'd be like, well, here's like the checklist or here's all the things we have to believe. But then you have essays that are opposed to each other in a sense. I mean, in my essay in the, about science and the Christian faith, I think James Orr is less concerned with whether or not evolution is true, but more like, why do we get so caught up in this guys? Like what we have to believe is God's the creator and then we're good. And that, and that humankind is the pinnacle of creation. But he even recognizes that, Hey, you know, evolution hasn't been proven is how he puts it. So I think that's really fascinating that the fundamental people, fundamentalists, whatever they call themselves at this time, have room. Yeah. The proto fundamentalists have room for disagreement here, which is fascinating because I don't think of fundamentalists as um, people who kind of let you have room for disagreement on a, on a number of these issues, especially something like evolution. So we have one more essay, and this one comes to us from Melvin Benson of the Cinematic Doctrine podcast, and it's a pre-recorded one. Here is our discussion. So what is the essay that you read? So the title of the essay that I read is The Testimony of the Scriptures to Themselves by George Bishop. It is literally about what the scriptures say about themselves, specifically about its inerrancy. Most distinctly, and this is just a silly thing, I just like that this is essentially a 1910 blog post in response to something <laughs> that somebody didn't like. <laughs> and so that made it even more entertaining to read. It, it, he's re- writing in response to a particular modernist theology. And he, it's really until the only until the end that he starts really getting into that. Uh, and it's interesting to read this basically classic diss track where he's sort of saying how some of that stuff is silly. Like, okay, if you're using modernist theology to say that scripture is not inerrant, then everything falls apart. And he starts to, of course, make cases for that. But yeah, that seems to be his biggest focus here. Scripture is inherent, inerrant. This is why, and kind of running with that. What, what does he mean by scripture is inerrant? When he starts detailing the specifics of what he means by inerrancy, he decides to go specifically into authority. And he gives a couple, I think he gives about six particular examples. He says, uh, the Bible is authority because in it, from cover to cover, God is the speaker. So the idea being that God, having written all of the scriptures, that inherently gives it authority. Specifically, he ties into Mount Sinai, where you have a difference between Moses writing the Torah and God using his finger to write on the tablets. And he's, I be, I'm assuming during the time of modernist thought or the, the budding era of modernist thought, people saw that as a crux to say, See, there's a distinction between God writing because he's using his finger to write on tablets and Moses writing. So it can't specifically be, of course, the author is saying, no, <laughs> it's both. This doesn't change anything, uh, which I, I think that makes sense. That, that seems reasonable to me. He, of course, would follow that up by saying the scriptures never say that an author was inspired, but they were moved. And he starts to then detail the specifics distinction between inspiration and moving, whereas moving is something where when it hits you, you're compelled to do something as opposed to inspiration, which is self-created. Uh, and he said that 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 particular language of movement implies an external push. And he would, of course, say that that was the Lord. So that's where, of course, he's arguing that, um, you know, the whole words of of the Lord, well, I just said it there, but the whole Bible is the word of the Lord uh, from the beginning to the end. 
and this is something that people will say regularly about um, accountability regarding like, is what someone said actually accurate? And so they'll go back and say, well, if Jesus's resurrection was actually true, why did God have two women share the account first? When during that particular time period, a woman's uh, words weren't even applicable in a court of law. So in this particular case, he's saying that the fact that the Bible has language coming from everything, uh, all of creation, whether it's rich man, poor man, or even at times like a donkey <laughs> speaking, all of these details he believes shows an inerrant quality that that says this is from the word of the Lord. See how everything about the Lord's creation speaks to his details. All right. So that was Melvin Benson from the Cinematic Doctrine podcast. Uh, so it's what struck me about Melvin's essay and, and, and made me think about all the essays is that I have read these arguments in other books. He, he basically laid out the case for Christ, the least trouble book. It, it's interesting to me that we're still using the same arguments. Not that that's a bad thing, but we're just kind of taking the same arguments and reshaping them in, into new packages. So kind of to, to wrap all of this up, what are some of the things you've, you've taken away from hearing all these ep- essays? I think that even, even amongst a movement that puts a book together, that they don't necessarily all have one unified theory and explanation. And I think that's also a good way for us to operate in a church too, is to allow people who have different ideas and theories on things to coexist in the same room to sharpen each other, but also to coexist and be a part, not, not in the coexist bumper stickers way, but, but in the, just, just to learn how to, to live with each other and to balance each other out. Because if these guys can do it and they had varied ideas, I think that's encouraging that we within a church should have people that believe one thing and people who believe another thing, as long as they're revolving around the gospel and revolving around the Bible and trying to work out those small details. Of course, the big things should be there, but those those small things, can can people can work those out together. For a Patreon bonus, for people who support this show, we're going to have a brief conversation about what we would include in our modern day, the fundamentals. So that's something to look forward to if you support the Truce Podcast. You can hear that conversation. I was surprised by how accessible this was. As somebody who generally does not read theology, it was pretty accessible. Mm-hmm. So when you you had a name attached to yours, I had a name attached to mine. All of them did except for Nick's, and I felt like the guys who had really were really pouring into these articles, the ones that were named. Um, I, I was I was joking before about the a person from the pew. It I do get to the sense that. That not everybody has <laughs> that not everybody has put in the time and the effort to consider these things on a level to be winsome and to be helpful and to truly seek to reflect a God who loves. So we we talk sometimes about hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is the way that you understand scripture, the lens through which you view scripture. And so <laughs> hermeneutics. If you have a hermeneutic of goodwill, I believe that God is good, and I believe that he loves me, and he wants to communicate to me. And, you know, Jesus is the word, right? He is He is the exact representation of what God wants us to see of himself. If that's the case, and we quibble over scripture and we argue and it divides us, we're missing the point. And so if we will 
pour ourselves into it and see how can we address the opponent's issues lovingly and winsomely. That seems to be what what all of the named authors were trying to do. Not positive that all the rest of them were that way, but this one that Nick had, uh, it was really hyperbolic. It was drawing some lines. It was saying, I want black and white. I want to have this question answered. And you shouldn't be afraid to answer it. I got that email this morning. Like, sincerely, I got an email this morning that said, I don't think you should be afraid. I'm not afraid. I have just decided I'm going to pay attention to what it says and present the passage for whatever it says. If it, if it, if I have a problem with it, I need to adjust rather than adjusting it, right? And I definitely don't want to get up and speak topically where I just hit these issues every single week. Hard preaching, straight on. Head first. Don't be afraid, Pastor. Be unapologetic about that. We need to hear about these things. I think we need to hear what it actually says. And that's what the rest of these articles seem to be doing, is paying attention to what it actually says about itself, about Christ, about the good news, because it's good news, (laughs) not bad news. That, to me, is important. It can be a struggle to stay within the center of the gospel. We want to be pulled to extremes. It's more comfortable in extremes. To ditch parts of the Bible in favor of sin or what the culture says, or to emphasize one part of the gospel so strongly that it eclipses all the rest of it. Overall, we found that the fundamentals were good, worth reading, an interesting time capsule, and a helpful call to take the Bible seriously. I've included a list of the essays we read in your show notes if you'd like to read them for yourself. Hopefully, you can see that while these authors disagreed with each other, most of them were not militant. Remember, the definition of fundamentalism we're using this season is militantly anti-modernist Protestant evangelical. In the coming weeks, we'll see how the militancy took hold. Until then, maybe consider for yourself what you think are the fundamentals. How should we communicate them? And how should we react to others who disagree? Special thanks to my friends who helped with this episode, including Jake Dobrins, host of the Creatively Christian podcast, and Melvin Benson of the Cinematic Doctrine podcast. I'm indebted to Ray McDaniel, Nick Starin, and Andy Pearson for helping out in person. If you want to hear our special patrons-only bonus episode, visit patreon.com slash trucepodcast. This show is discussing stuff nobody else is. If you want to be a part of this extraordinary project, please consider giving a little each month. It's a ton of work to make this show and hold down my full-time job. Visit trucepodcast.com slash donate for more information. Subscribe to the show so you get every new episode as it's released. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. God willing, we'll talk again soon. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. 
Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time. This episode is brought to you by The Compelled Podcast. What would you do if you came face-to-face with a murderer sent to kill you for being a Christian? For Virginia Prodan, that question isn't hypothetical. Virginia was a small, petite attorney defending Christians in court in communist Romania. And she was really good. So good, in fact, she caught the attention of the communist regime. One day, a tall, muscular man walked into her office, closed the door, and pulled out a gun. He barked, Shut up. Sit down. I'm here to kill you. Virginia was face-to-face with a trained assassin. What happened next would surprise both of them. Listen to Virginia's entire story on the Compelled Podcast, where they find incredible true-life stories of God working through the lives of normal people. Virginia is on episode number 31, which is titled, He Came to Kill Me. Listen on your podcasting app or at compelledpodcast.com.